Welcome to Let's Talk About Treks, an episodic review of today's visions of the future featuring Earl Grey and Jack Dorino. This week, Jack and Earl are covering Crisis Point 2, Paradoxus. It's the eighth episode of the third season of Star Trek Lower Decks. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody. Hello. I am Earl Grey. My name is Jack Dorino. And we are Let's Talk About Treks. That is who we are. Today we're discussing Star Trek Lower Decks Season 3 Episode 8 Crisis Point Part 2 Paradoxes. Mm-hmm. The release date was the 13th of October 2022. It was the 28th episode of Lower Decks. It was also the 861st of all Star Trek released. Yes. This episode was written by Ben Rogers. Yes. And it was directed by Michael Mullen. This is the return of Michael Mullen, who also directed the Deep Space Nine episode of Star Trek Lower Decks. Ooh, cool. The in-universe date, there is no start date given. However, we are still in 2382, but I don't think that'll change until next season. You know, the season artwork for this the season of Star Trek Lower Decks had that sort of movie feel with like the hazy face and then the like colored vertical lines mm-hmm, yeah it didn't make sense to me until today okay because it's similar to like the search for spock movie or maybe the wrath of khan movie but similar to the to the early movies of the star trek old scientists era yeah yeah so now suddenly that that whole like aesthetic makes sense and, and we're also doing the uh wider aspect cinematic ratio too as we as we open the episode, the Cerritos is in battle, and I was a little. I thought that maybe I had started the wrong episode because I, you know, we started the the Peanut Hamper episode. You know, last episode we started with <laughs> Cerritos in battle in space too. So I was like, wait, wait, wait. I actually when I started playing it, and then I like I hit back and then went to the episode again, and I was like, oh, well, I guess I guess we're starting the same. I thought that I had messed up. <laughs> okay. The Cerritos is the Cerritos is in battle with a Valdor class Romulan ship. I was not sure what kind of uh, Romulan ship that was right from the start. I think that we saw it first maybe in Nemesis or Deep Space Nine. I'm not really sure which. It seems to me it was uh, Nemesis. Okay. I think that makes sense. We find out the ship is going to get boarded and our two security chiefs, which I'm still stuck on how we have secure two security chiefs. <laughs> they take ransom and they run down to the science lab. There's a group of Romulans that have beamed aboard and they are taking a device from what's presumably a science lab. Yeah. Uh, we notice a blonde Romulan and I was wondering if he was related to uh, Commander Sila. You know, there's a thing that always has bothered me about Sila, and that has to do with like genes and the recessiveness and dominance mm-hmm. and it's always seemed odd to me that in a culture that's like 99% up until the time we saw Sila comprised of people who have dark hair and dark eyes that we would end up with a mating between a Romulan and a Tasha Yar and end up with a Sila who has who carries far more traits of her mother than of anything Romulan mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there I guess now that now we're expanding that the idea of those genes in farther into yeah. the Romulan culture with this episode. The Labrador Retriever has three colors. Most people are familiar with black, but a black Labrador with the chocolate and the blonde genes in its line can still throw chocolate and la- yellow Labrador puppies. Yes, absolutely. Even though black in almost every species on Earth is a dominant feature. 
Yeah. In that one to four math, you you yeah. always have the possibility of, of the one being uh, the blonde hair, blue eyed Labrador. <laughs> well, I wasn't okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a the scientist like stand up stands up and he's gonna make this, you know, the standard Star Trek speech about I'll destroy this before I like As you kinda like expect the villain to do a lot of times, he just phasers him to death. <laughs> Yep. So that's the way to, to get over get past that speech. Yeah. This allows the Romulans to escape with the device. Yeah. There's three three Romulan sisters aboard this Valdor class ship and they order the destruction of the Cerritos. I get the sense that these sisters are sort of like uh an amount not an amalgam, an analogy for the Dura sisters. Well, and especially with their their uniforms with this boob window <laughs> that the Dura sisters had. <laughs> the boob window. Boimer must have totally latched on to that about that must identify them as the Dura sisters. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a Dura sisters trait. They definitely want to have the cleavage window. <laughs> the Wayfarer appears. Mm, yeah. And it is under the command of Captain Bucephalus Dagger, who is uh, played by Radward Boimler. Mm-hmm. Yep. I thought for a minute that we were, that this was William, you know, from the Titan, and maybe he's just gone on and he's got his own ship you know because this guy has been advancing super quickly yeah but it turns out that we are actually on the holodeck yes this is the next the next movie in the series of uh, of crisis point exactly so now we've stitched everything together so we can enjoy the episode and they go to break and i think that's a good time for us to go to break i agree with you let's do it we'll be right back It's Isaac here from Unplanned Trek. Like our good friends at Let's Talk About Treks, each week we do a new show. We put it up at where you listen to podcasts, and what we do is we focus on Star Trek. Any episode or movie from across all the Trek canon is open each week for us to attach our unique lens to it and dissect it with a little bit of humour thrown in too. So if you like these guys, give us a go too. Search Unplanned Trek wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for sticking with us. Yes, we are all still here. <laughs> As we're coming back into the episode, uh, whoever's written this this hollow play uh, yeah. has given everyone ridiculous names. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I think the Bucephalus Dagger isn't a great name, but I do think that if I were Bradward Boimler, that I would think that it's like a great heroic name. Just because yeah, it's long and complicated. Dagger is definitely a strong, penetrative name. Um, okay. But the other names are, are a little bit silly. Uh, we have Commander Doodle. Yeah. Which is the first <laughs> officer that uh, Mariner is playing. Wonder if he was doodling in the margins of his uh, script when he thought of that name. We learned that these Malpinar sisters mm -hmm. are these new Romulan Dura sisters. And uh, they are after a device called the Chronogami, which might sound silly, but I can't imagine that it sounds sillier than Time Crystals. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like it. The way that we find out that this is a hollow program, actually, is that Ransom calls in to Boimler. The actual real-world Ransom calls in to Boimler over the comm channel, and, you know, yeah. he has to pause for a second and then go meet with, with, uh, with Ransom. I was excited to see the Kazinti characters back in this episode. Apparently, he pulled 
from not just his four buddies or three buddies, but the rest of the lower decks as well for inspiration. Yeah, I mean, he's actually pulled a whole bunch of people into the hollow program. And I thought mm -hmm. that we had done a thing about, you know, you're not supposed to re reproduce real people on the holodeck. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what that was about was when, like, say, Barkley was reproducing them also as alternate people to fulfill their fantasies about that person. Whereas Boimler is just literally using the strict, real, actual person and not altering them or over-sexualizing them or objecting them in, a, in any way. Yeah, you would think that he learned not to do this from the episode where he learned that Mariner was Freeman's daughter. Like, it, that kind of got him in trouble before. You'd think maybe he wouldn't do it again. Maybe, but maybe he didn't connect those dots. Or maybe he connected it too much with uh, Mariner's interference with what he was doing in the first place anyway. And maybe he was just so mad at her. I mean, it kind of becomes evident during the episode that she did that. That he, That's why he went ahead and wrote this kind of like angry typing or something. Do you think so? Or angry texting, is that a thing? I think so. Okay. That just is occurring to me now, but it, yeah, it certainly seems plausible. Maybe he wasn't thinking completely clearly in the moment. It is possible that this whole thing was reflexive from the first crisis point, because there's a whole conversation about this being a bad sequel and, you know, him destroying the Vindictiverse. And at one point he says, he actually says a Mariner line, which was, I can do what I want. <laughs> Something that I'm familiar with her saying, uh, yeah. especially last season and during the, uh, during that movie last time. Okay. When we get to the opening credits of this movie, there's like a, there's a, an opener, like a similar to like the stinger at the beginning of every Lower Decks episode, you know, with the koala moment. Yeah. So there's like a, a building music that would usually take us into the Star Trek movie, you know, theme song or one of the Star Trek mm -hmm. movie theme songs. And it instead, of course, gives us the Lower Decks theme song, which I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I thought that was very clever. Um, well, and I also thought it was cute how they're just sitting there, technically sitting on the ground of the holodeck, but they're looks like they're floating in space and they're watching the credits. Sure. It, it clarified a point for me at, from the last time they did this were the characters watching the credits as we were watching the credits as well, you know, because I don't think they made it that clear before. When Boimler comes in all all sad, I thought that maybe he was upset because he wouldn't be able to work with his with his friends anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, because we, we did see Boimler and Mariner on the bridge as con and ops, you know, so they, yeah. they definitely have the same duty shift. They hang out a lot. So maybe if he changed duty shifts, he wouldn't be able to see them as much. I, I assume that's why he was he was all upset. I thought by shift rotation or something, I thought he meant he was being transferred. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, that would be, again, that would be awful as well. Uh, along those same lines, that would certainly kind of dampen his day. And, and of course, that's where the show wanted us to believe that was going on. Oh, I'm sure. And I fell for it hook, line, and stinker. They liked a red herring us a lot on, uh, yes. on Lower Decks. <laughs> but it's not not to say that that's a bad thing. It's kind of fun. Oh no, no, that's great. I think it's I think it's awesome that I that you you get me to think one thing so you can do another thing. Yeah. Moments after the Rutherford, 
we are we we find ourselves at the at Europa at a Starfleet Temporal mm-hmm. Laboratory. Europa is a moon of Jupiter. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Jupiter in the background. So yeah, yeah. All these worlds are yours except Europa. Was the line. Huh? The uh, there's a lab setup, which is just like you know, well, well, first of all, there's a lab setup like Star Trek Two, you know, with Carol Marcus, and the uniforms are also similar to the Carol Marcus and the scientists' uniform. There. Yeah, the establishing shot, the base is like just the top of the regular station too. Agreed. Agreed. There's a, there's like strong Carol Marcus parallels to the point where. You know, our character Bucephalus Dagger is this is his you know love interest, and uh, because Bradward's in the mood he's in, mm-hmm. he's not interested in doing the love plot right now. Right, and uh, he kind of blows her off. I'm here for your research, not your heart. Yeah. The Carol Marcus character explains that Romulans have the Chronogami. That's when we get the whole explanation of the Chronogami by Marcus, and there's also at the same time that we get Rutherford sort of shading the graphics. Oh, I thought he's tripping over him. I thought he liked him. Oh, I think he did, but I think that at the same... So this is a thing that Lower Decks does, is that the writers speak directly to us through the characters, mm-hmm. right? Like, the characters are not breaking the fourth wall, but the writers are breaking the fourth wall okay. by having the characters highlight something in a way that just calls attention to it. Oh, okay. So I think this is the writer being, like, agreeing with us that the graphics are not great for a Star Trek movie. Something that's supposed to happen 300 years, or four, 300, at that time, 300 years in the future. Maybe maybe Rutherford's a bit bit of a retro nerd. He could be. His ship was kind of odd that he, well, that Rutherford built in that previous episode. Yeah. I do kind of think that this is a little bit of a goofy explanation because what is a world line? So that she says that we've learned that there are space-time world lines that prevent the beginning of existence from merging with the end. Well, I mean, those are real. There, there is a real theory about world lines. That is definitely a phrase I've heard floating around the ether. I'm not terribly clear on it. Uh, Boimler's like fully in in this depression mode. Yeah. When we get provided the the chronogami watch, which is not at all a dumb prop. It's not? Well, that's, oh. see, this is me playing Rutherford now. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, my God, the watch is so awesome. Mariner kind of calls it out, and in that moment, this is like, I don't know, the second or third time I thought simultaneously it reminded me of a couple of my favorite YouTube channels, one being uh, CinemaSins. Mariner would be good at CinemaSins, and the other one just... She's calling out the tropes and talking about the tropes. There's a show on the channel, Overly Sarcastic Productions, called uh, Trope Talks, that she reminded me of. Trope Talks is exactly what it sounds like, where they talk about different tropes that happen in movies. Well, that's cool. So maybe maybe check that out. I don't, I don't endorse it because I've never seen it, never heard it. Oh, speaking of which. Yes. I made a giant, huge snafu, stuck my in poop, walked into an elephant's bunghole last episode, and I have to issue a very strong apology and a very certain mm-hmm. retraction. Okay. Last episode, I made intimation of the idea that Kate Mulgrew is a Trump supporter MAGA red hat. Okay. I retract my words. I was 100% wrong. Mm-hmm. Upon further research at the behest of one of our uh, listeners, I learned that that is not true at all, that quite the opposite is true. Okay. So one of our listeners who goes by at 
Zandara on uh, on Twitter at X A N D A R A, who is also the Star Dispatch on Twitter, mm-hmm. not only made it clear to me, but mm-hmm. pointed me to references, including one where Kate Mulgrew is fully supporting the ideas of Biden and Harris, and you know talking about voting for them and the rest of the Democratic Party. So, Kate Mulgrew, I apologize. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the, welcome to the fold. I'm, I'm glad you're here over here with us, and I apologize yeah. for making that snafu. Well, that is very big of you to uh, be able to admit your fault, your 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 error, and I appreciate that of you in behalf of our audience. My teachable moment in this is when I hear or when someone tells me something I need to do further research and to, you know, verify Mm -hmm. that on my own. I think that the same is true for really all of us. You know, if you hear something and you you grab onto it, don't just go running with it. Make sure you validate and confirm those sources and make sure the information that you have is correct before you then go spewing some information to others because not everybody is going to you know verify themselves yeah so make sure that the stuff that you're saying is really more verifiable that's that's my learning that what i learned from this i i really appreciate that that's one of the biggest takeaways that i i learned in english one and uh, college level english one and college level english two when i was uh going to school pre-pandemic so yeah always verify your sources know what your sources are and sometimes you have to go digging and find out what their sources are and oh. what's the for sure. The only thing I found for sure was on her Wikipedia page that talks about that she herself personally is pro-life, but she also understands the, the need and the necessity for a choice. So she's kind of both pro-life and pro-choice. As we rejoin our Lower Decks crew, we are heading to a planet called Tadashore 9. Mm. Does that name sound familiar? It does, and I wasn't sure how, and I... Yeah. was too negligent to look it up there's a there's a gentleman named fred tattashore oh and he is the voice of our one of our security chiefs uh shacks oh, okay so this is a planet that has been named after him this is sort of a i'm gonna call it an an internal episode trope so for this episode naming our planets after people who are uh actors in the star trek community is yeah. a, a repeated thing in this episode oh okay Sounds like Boimler really did break the fourth wall. Did again? I think the writers are breaking the fourth wall, not the characters. Oh, okay. So Dagger, Dagger completely disses Marcus. Like mm-hmm. he sort of does the same thing to her that he did to um, to the girls on his uh, to the women on his uh, raisin farm. Yeah, I mean they were all over him, and she's now she's all over him. And... Yeah, completely. He's not unaware this time though. Now he's just not interested. Yeah. Mariner, like, points out that, well, I don't know how you're not because she's super hot. Which, <laughs> yeah. I, the only thing that I think interesting about that is that I think if that line had come from one of the male characters, it would be more mm-hmm. of a problem. Like, I don't think it's a problem coming from Mariner. Yeah. Because the classic style of objectification that we're used to recognizing and seeing and calling out is generally male on female. Yeah. And I think this line passes like innocuously i don't think that it's a problem in this moment but it does like double down on oh by the way mariner's a lesbian <laughs> which is which is fine yeah that's fine we we beam into this favela on tatashore 9 which reminds me of 
you know the different communities on on was it Targana Four? Uh, that sounds about right. It's a place where we took that Klingon ambassador. Yeah. And they have the, the different little like uh, cultural villages where you have like the Klingon section, the Andorian section, the Tellarite section, and this is this reminds me of like the back alley Klingon section from the end of season one of Star Trek Discovery. Yes. Which is where we see this Porky Pig walk by, and we come across the holodeck extras yeah and several of them are uh, peddling several different religions yeah there's one that's talking about do you feel lost in your way let manuki got you there's one that's actually just speaking the reality of their situation is which is <laughs> holograms in a simulation yeah and then there's you know? one guy with koala eyes who's holding up a stuffed koala and saying the koala smiles on us all <laughs> the interesting thing about the simulation theory is that's an actual theory from the 21st century that people are trying to represent now i think a lot of physicists are presenting that is that this right here could all just be some simulation from some ultimate kind of playstation 9500 from some ultimate being from somewhere just playing Sims 900 on a, you know, video game. Yeah. So I've, I've read this theory and I've seen lots of articles on it. Yeah. And my question is always the one that they never address. The mm -hmm. one they never address is like the question. Okay. The question. So what? Okay. Like, so what does it matter? Like, this is the thing about alternate universes and dimensions and ghosts and goblins and, you know, anything beyond this actual physical plane yeah. is not going to affect my life. If it does affect my life, it probably won't affect the, you know, like it would affect my my soul. Like my soul can go there, but my body can't go there. My body's stuck here. Mm -hmm. And it's the combination of my soul and my body that make this person here now. So for this person here now, none of that matters. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just kind of like examining your navel to me. Like it's not going <laughs> to lead anywhere. You know, like there's nothing you can do with that information. It usually comes up on Discovery Channel episodes where they're talking about the meaning of life or does God exist or what is creation or why are we here and stuff like that. Yeah. Some of those vague wishy-washy cosmologist kind of episodes and stuff. Yeah. The last guy is there's this guy who's who's talking about uh, a place called Katiha. Yeah. And he says that, you know, there's a forbidden moon at the end of the journey to Katiha and uh, Boimler you know, being as distracted as he is by whatever's going on in his head, decides that he <laughs> needs answers. So he wants to follow these, you know, these characters who are sort of living in the margins of the holodeck story and are being mm -hmm. procedurally generated, you know, mm -hmm. as as you focus on them. I think the thing about the holodeck is like the characters that you specifically put in to have a role as opposed to being background, like those are the ones that you're going to focus on. Those are the ones that the computer generates more and more, yeah. you know, uh, uh, context and depth for them, the more you focus on them. Mm -hmm. So now he's, now he's turning the holodeck towards focusing on these background characters. And as he does, the computer has to generate more and more to validate their existence. Yeah, and any and any GM who has been role playing and running games long enough knows this kind of scenario where one random player just wants to go and interact with an NPC that you thought was just a one off, and they want to make them a part of the game, and is like, no, I had nothing on this. Yeah, the holodeck's a really good GM because it creates meaning for everybody. So like, this is how this is where Moriarty <laughs> came from, right? Like more or less. Moriarty would 
yeah, I mean, Moriarty would have just been a regular character, but then they said, well, it needs to be a character that's going to be able to defeat Data. So because it had to defeat Data, it needed to be as good as Data. So it needed to be as close to alive and it needed to be <laughs> as close to like, it needed to be brilliant. So the computer had to put a lot into it to make it yeah. the Moriarty that we saw, yeah. you know, trying to emerge from the holodeck. So do you think that was part of the code that they had to include with, say, the EMH to make it sentient and other holograms that do are sentient? The EMH wasn't intended to be sentient. It wasn't? No, the EMH was intended to have a bedside manner. Okay. But it wasn't supposed to be activated for longer than like a few hours to take care of a particular situation. And then it was going to go away okay. again. That So this is that thing again, right? So the fact that the doctor was the on Voyager, the fact that the doctor was up and operating and then we continued mm -hmm. to focus on it, well, the computer had to generate more and more to make this a valid, interactable, you know, object. Oh, okay. What about Vic Fontaine? What do you think something like that? Had so sure, same thing. So Vic Fontaine is just like a lounge singer, but the more people started talking to him and interacting with him, the computer had to generate more and more to make him someone that you could interact with more and more. Oh, okay. You know, because otherwise you're going to end up with a, a hollow program that's just going to like stare at you and stare off into the distance and be like frozen because it's like I don't I don't know what to do now. <laughs> so it had to it's generate be a little bit hollow. Yeah, so it had to generate more and more purpose and more and more internal stuff for that character to be able okay. to interact with someone who's, you know, wanting to interact with it. Okay. So what happens next? Tindy has a lock on the on the Kronagami. Yes. And this is when we are introduced to the gravity cycles again. Now, when we did the episode oh. Mining the Mines Mines, and yeah. Boimler had the fantasy where the Admiral pops up on a gravity cycle, and he's like, <laughs> oh, let's go fight the Borg. Uh, I thought that Boimler had just invented these in his mind. Now, well, I'm not saying that he didn't. Yeah, I'm actually still saying it's possible that he did because it's also possible that when we did the episode Mining the Mind's Minds, Boimler mm -hmm. was writing this program, which is why the hollow cycle from this program would have appeared from his mind during that episode. Mm. Do you think one of the uh, Hover Cycles had a sidecar. Boimler can't drive. He only likes to ride sidecar. Well, thankfully, we don't have to worry about that because Boimler decides that he's going to branch off and, and follow this uh, Katiha mission. And he <laughs> gives Tindy the role of acting captain. Oh, cool. You see, Boimler's, Boimler's attracted to what has organically and unexpectedly emerged from the holodeck. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the best part because what you've written, you already you have control over. You know it's going to happen. You know its limitations. But this is the yeah. part where it's just you know emerging from the ether. So, if anything's going to organically emerge from the ether of the universe of which the holodeck is a part, mm -hmm. then maybe that will be built of the fabric of the of the actual underlying meaning of the actual purpose. Like it's not. It's not something that someone made up. It's something mm -hmm. that is just being generated by, you know, the universe around them. Oh, okay. So it would be pulling. It would be pulling from the fabric of reality to create this thing. So maybe that, you know, could help us find what that fabric is made of. Ooh, that's a good perspective to figure things out. So is the uh, Cerritos computer kind of like deep thought? No, it's just a, it's a very advanced computer. So and it has like hundreds of of petaflops of data they can call upon to generate new programs uh-huh i'm sorry i just you said petaflops and my 
mine went somewhere else. Okay. Back over with Tindy, we are on a chase sequence. And Tindy does this, like, Orion pirate-type move. I think Ooh. that previous to last episode, we wouldn't have seen Tindy do this. Really? Uh, yeah, I think that Tindy has found a way to be that incorporates, you know, how she grew up and also okay. Starfleet at the same time. So she she's now oh, able yeah. to employ those pirate skills to Starfleet missions. Yeah, so she's, you know, been able to be freed for to be herself a little bit more, you mean? Yes. Okay. Which this uh, this crazy, like, Tomb Raider jump off the cycle <laughs> is kind of what she does in, in this moment, is she's, she's tapping into her, her Orion-ness. Mm -hmm. This is, cool. this may be, Tendi may represent our first time being able to see the value of an Orion upbringing. Mm. Because we've always looked at them like pirates and they're the bad guy. But mm -hmm. they've probably developed and honed skills that could be useful to Starfleet, which is probably what Tendi thought when she joined Starfleet. Mm, okay. But then once she got there, it was kind of like there was a whole bunch of shade about Orion's. <laughs> she, had to, she like tamped that down. Yeah. But now that she's learned that it can have value and have, you know, uh, it, it can save the day, I think she's yeah. now unafraid to begin exploring and using that. So initially she's she's masking and we explored that in the DS9 episode and now she's taken off her mask. Right. Now she's got BP big pirate energy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the uh the the Romulans activate the chronogami. Yes. And the the question that the character Freeman is making is like, well, we might not be able to get back to this time if we follow them into the vortex. Well, the thing is, if you don't follow them into the vortex, yeah, you might not exist anymore. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, so you might as well go in, which is you know the the line of thinking that Tindy goes for when she's like, okay, let's go in, let's enter this threshold. Yes, and let's cross into our next commercial, which we won't go to commercial about. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, we find ourselves in the year 2341 at a Starfleet Research Center. This is during a period of time that is being called the Great Sulian Algae Crisis. Yes. First, okay, so first I'm thinking, I don't know whether this is made up for the story or whether mm -hmm. this is an actual event that we just didn't know about previously. Yeah, I mean, this definitely they're wearing the uh, maroon uniforms. This definitely takes place during the Lost Eras. Yeah, so literally 2341 is, is when this happens. Yeah. It kind of sounds silly. I, the only thing I want to examine is, okay, so if you have an algae that you don't know is sentient, mm -hmm. but is growing everywhere and, like, gumming up all the works, mm -hmm. wouldn't you just eradicate it? Like what makes you what makes you decide? Oh, I'm gonna go get this octopus, and this octopus is gonna telepathically communicate with the algae to resolve this algae crisis. I think this is an event that Boimler made up. Possibly, but uh, I think what they're going for, like, is a collective intelligence. I understand what you're saying. I still think this is an event that Boimler made up. Okay. We have Ambassador Koro, who is this octopus-type creature, communicating with the algaic slime mind. Mm -hmm. During all this interesting stuff going on, Rutherford is munching down on this big hoagie. <laughs> and he's got chips with it. You gotta have chips. Of course. There's an issue 
that Tendi takes with this because it seems as if he's not taking this seriously. I think it's okay to not take it. I mean, they're basically in sitting in the 24th century equivalent of a movie theater. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And no one turns around and says, Hey, can you stop eating that popcorn so loudly? Yeah. And I mean, we're all just in it for the new Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, Marvel super flick. We were talking about eating loudly. Yeah, but yeah. Okay. It's a community experience. Right. So, and and also the mute, the, usually the sound is loud enough that it's going to drown out the sound of, of popcorn. Yeah, sure. And I can't imagine a hoagie would be louder than popcorn. I think Tiffany's yeah. going a little bit overboard with, with her issues yeah. with Rutherford. Maybe. Yeah. Now, if somebody were talking on a cell phone and, and you know, in her movie, that would be different. Back in the favela, we are focusing on a on a. I was going to call him a gentleman, but I think that would be a little bit too loose. <laughs> named Elustor, who's you know who's another character who's being generated on the fly by the holodeck. This becomes apparent um, while we're talking to him because he keeps having to like slow down until he can figure out what the next thing he's supposed to say is. And we learn oh, right. when Mariner mentions, you know, that he doesn't, that his backstory is being generated procedurally, then mm -hmm. the computer latches onto that and applies that to him. And then he has yeah. a map on his back. <laughs> yep. Yep. So I look up the place, I looked at the places that are on this map and the, some of the points that, some of the places that are pointed out are Earth, mm -hmm. uh, Mercury, there's Kelva, there's Alpha 7, there's Itamashi and Karzo. Okay. Now, some of these, some obviously, some of these places are real. There's Earth is real, yeah, and Mercury is yeah. real. However, yep. between Earth and Mercury should be Venus and Mars. Instead, what's between Earth and Mercury is a place called Kelva. Yes. There's also so in uh, Star Trek um, three. Is it the Wrath of No Star Trek two? Sorry. <laughs> Hashtag and I call myself a Trekkie. There's a place called SETI Alpha. Okay. But this is just Alpha 7. So I think that we're missing the SETI on that. And then also there's a place called Carzil. Okay. Carzil was a place that we recently saw in Lower Decks. Is it? Carzil 4 was a planet yeah. previously mentioned in Lower Decks. It was affiliated with the Pakleds. Mm. It was a site of a mining colony where Veruvan ore was extracted. Oh, okay. Right, so the, the USS Titan actually went there ah. after the Pakleds overran that planet. Oh, okay. So these so some of these are real places and some of them are not, but they mm -hmm. are all like sort of related. I don't know what Kelva is, except for at one point during this episode there's a mention of the Kelvin universe. Yeah. So I'm wondering if maybe that's a tie to that. So we have Earth oh. which has some connections to things. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. heard of this place. Uh then there's Kelva, which might be Kelvin Universe. And there's Mercury, which is in the Sol system. There's Alpha 7, which I think is supposed to be SETI Alpha. And then there's Karzal, which are all, they're all okay. places. So they're all real places, but the map is all like twisted up and it's not quite the way it's supposed to, like they're not laying out properly on a map. Mariner actually points out that this can't be like, the, I think that she's also noticing this map is not right at all. <laughs> One was like, shut up, I don't want to hear it. Vindictive was stupid, so if you think this stupid thing is stupid, then we're going to do this stupid thing too, since we did that stupid Vindictive thing. Yeah. They have several arguments, actually, during this episode about, like, the validity of of the Vindictiverse uh, sequel here. 
mm-hmm. that boy was writing. Because you know, sometimes when you change when you change the uh, the writer of the series to one of the actors, mm-hmm. it sort of changes the the flavor. This is something that happens like around Star Trek three, four. Yeah, the movies. Oh, so yeah. I think again, this is the writers, I believe, you know, poking at Star Trek. Uh, Nack is a character that the first time we see him, I'm, I'm already drawn into him. I like how he reminds me of Yoda. What makes you think of Yoda when you when you? When well, you see he's him? doing the the growl speak and the backwards speak. Oh, I see. Or backwards relative to English. The anyway. syntax is off. The syntax, yeah. Okay. Alright, so we, we have that argument about the, the hollow creativity and the human condition, and mm-hmm. because of that, Mariner basically disowns, she's like, okay, I'm no longer part of the Vindictive franchise, you have yeah. it, this is not the same thing. Yeah, I liked how when she steps out of the holodeck, she has to step over the widescreen, the black bar at the bottom of the white widescreen. Yeah, so when she does that, she she's heading out for her performance review uh, that Ransom has is giving her. And it turns out that she's actually doing really well. Like she hasn't mm-hmm. had like a lot of problems like she had maybe during the first season. I was rather surprised by that. Ransom also reveals to her that uh, William Boimler has died. Mm-hmm. There was a, a flood of neurocene gas in or neurocene into quarters and it suffocated him. He died. So Boimler's actually on leave right now. He's on a bereavement leave. Uh-huh. And one other note about this scene is that Ransom introduces us to his own little lower deck set. Right? Yeah. So he also has a group of four. It's him and there's, you know, Nurse Westlake, who we've seen before in the series in in Sick Bay, and Matt the Whale, who we've also who we've also talked to before. Don't don't wear shoes in his house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then Honus the bartender, who in the photograph is still serving drinks on his time <laughs> off. Yeah, this time fold drops us into the the twentieth century this time. Okay, and we are we are visited. It seems by the same the same punk with the radio from uh, <laughs> from the voyage from uh, Star Trek three, uh, Star Trek four. Yes, and also we saw him recently in Star Trek Picard. Oh, really? Yeah. Small spoiler for you. Okay. Uh, there's also a guy when they beat up the punks. There's a guy who looks remarkably similar to Rick Sanchez mm-hmm. from the show Rick and Morty. Yeah. He's kind of crumpled in the front. He's got purple hair. Okay. Um, Rutherford is, is, is after, you know, we're doing this whole punk beat up, he's stealing their clothes. Oh, well, I mean, that that's the thing that you got to do. I mean, that's, you're, you're at the part of the movie where you got to blend in with the, the crowd or the, you know, the bad guys so you don't get caught. Right, so, this, this so this is him switching switching into the guard's uniform. Yeah, exactly. He's <laughs> in switching the into the guard's uniform. Yeah. Or blending in with the, the current timeline, the ter- current time frame. Tendi says he's missing the point, but I think that he's not missing the point. I think he's having yeah. fun with the story, and I yeah. that's supposed to be the idea. See, for Tendi, this is proving that she mm-hmm. can be a, a captain. And for Rutherford, okay. this is just we're having fun. Right? Yeah. So, I kind of feel like if anyone's missing the point, it might be Tendi because she's going a little hard on this well, on this whole story. I think the show kind of missed uh, an opportunity here to have them go to the same 
year that they went to on Enterprise when um, Archer and T'Pol went to the past because they ended up in uh, 1982 instead of I think 2005 or 2008 you know they could have just had a little easter egg in the background of T'Pol and Archer walking around okay Mariner comes back in and when she does she finds Boimler aboard a space freighter well she doesn't find him initially first she's confronted by some some acolytes who capture her Mm-hmm. It turns out that the whole hunt for Katiha has failed, and the hollow deck characters who we forced to be more real and to have so much depth and texture that now they've turned against the main characters of this part of the storyline, and they've imprisoned mm-hmm. uh, Boimler yeah. just for being a failure at, at trying to find Katiha. You know, on this freighter, I thought the freighter l- reminded me of, well, I mean, I guess maybe it's a standard model of any freighter. During the during this side plot, you know the Boimler mentions the tattoo map was uh, mm-hmm. was a bust, which I mean you could have I mean look at where Mercury <laughs> look at Mercury and, and Earth like we I think pretty much anybody could have told you that that map was going to be completely useless. Yeah. So and this is for... go ahead. So of course the you know the. The, uh, the followers, the acolytes, have, have mutinied. And I don't know what they're going to do now. Mm-hmm. Well, Mariner helps Boimler really quickly get out of the, the cell. And uh, this is where, when we finally uh, take back control... Okay, so when 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 Mariner comes into the cell, she intimates that, Mar- that Rentum has made her aware of William's death. Yes. So... This is when Mariner realizes, oh, this is why he's going off on the side mission because he's trying to find the meaning of life because he's all upset about his double dying, and then he's he's uh, internalizing that because they are identical people. So if that guy died just out of the blue, then he could die out of the blue. And before he goes, he wants to make sure that he has lived a life of you know purpose, or you know done, found the meaning of yeah. life so that he can feel like he's been successful at it. Yeah. So, definitely. you know, making stuff matter makes you matter, apparently. Is that <laughs> is that valid, do you think? Yeah, I it's hard to say. I mean, it, in a way. Okay. I you don't know is what you're saying. All right. So, yeah. this is a this similar to that. This is a Mariner says that this is an uneven slog, you know, that totally ignores the successes of the original, which mm-hmm. again, I think this is the writer is talking about Star Trek sequels. Mm-hmm. But Boimler uses this opportunity to pull out his We Are Starfleet moment. Yes. So, so we now have at least two different two different characters of Star Trek that we can meme with the We Are Starfleet. <laughs> Up on the bridge of this freighter, Nicknack appears to save the day. Nicknack, who's apparently in love with Boimler. I'm in love with you! <laughs> I'm in love with you too, buddy. Let's go. And Mariner, point, uh, Mariner points out that this is where the romance, you know, comes into the story. Illustor, we find out, has a snake tongue. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was kind of a little creepy, but okay. It's very creepy. He has a snake tongue. It's it's like a snake. Snakes are a little creepy. Yeah. Um, Boimler also gets his moment to make a, make a, you know, a reference to the movie Labyrinth. You have no power here! <laughs> And chooses the, yep. the the route of action, which is which Mariner refers to as the Kirk thing, which is basically mm-hmm. just beat up your enemies. 
Yeah, yeah. Which provides for us the third act knickknack reveal. We learned that knickknack is a. He's not. Is he a septopod? Septa would be seven? Yeah. He's got four arms, two legs, and then there's another arm in the middle of his chest. Oh, right. Okay, so four arms, two legs, that's six. I, yeah. Are you Unless he's got a hidden third leg somewhere. Did you just check my arithmetic? You think I can't do math? No, I was picturing him in my head, and I had. Uh, I forgot about the second pair of arms. Yeah, yeah. I took. Yeah, I had to definitely go back and watch a couple times to see that he has seven limbs. Are we sure he doesn't? Don't have a bring it up leg? again. We heard you the oh. first time. Okay. I was moving on. <laughs> so we quickly see that apparently the map guy is a mad magazine with the fold over riddle image on the back cover. Yeah, he's he's got that that's scrolled across his back and it, we have discovered the real map to Katia. Yay! Back with our main plot, we have now come to the founding of the Federation in 2161. This is the second time that we've seen a holographic representation of the founding of the Federation. The first time was the end of Enterprise. In my head, it was simultaneously in the holodeck and not in the holodeck, depending on which perspective you were looking at it from. Okay. And uh, so this is a holographic representation of that, yep. and there is a Thaleron bomb. Yeah. Which is from the movie Nemesis. So I think maybe that doubles down the idea that the Valdor class ship must have come from Nemesis. Okay. Yeah, I forgot. I knew knew the prop looked familiar and I knew it was as a bomb, but I forgot the type of bomb that it was. It what's weird is that later when it when it actually explodes, what the faith what the Thaleron bomb did is it, it shot a bunch of particles up into the air and then as they mm -hmm. fell they sort of turned everybody into stones or into ash. Yeah. This is not that type of bomb. It's it has the same like physical like design, but it yeah. doesn't it doesn't quite work the same way. As Rutherford's working on these things, um he's singing this song, the choo choo song. Yeah, I wasn't sure what song that was. Okay. I'm glad. Because I wasn't sure either. I thought that I thought that I had missed something or there's some piece of pop culture I don't know. Maybe it was something that they encountered on their adventures through time. The whole now now it suddenly occurred to me that the whole reason for having him sing a song that he can't get rid of out of his head was to make a reference to earworms. Uh oh okay. Right, like Star Trek two. Said eel. Yeah. Oh, the uh, one of the one of the Romulans wakes up and tries to dis disrupt her Rutherford, mm -hmm. but actually ends up slaying Tiana. Uh oh! In, <laughs> as she's dying, the closed captioning often in in Lower Decks is very amusing because in yeah. this moment, she, the closed captioning says that she says, "Don't bull bleep a bull bleeper." <laughs> <laughs> As her boss oh. is, you know, dies there in front of her, yeah. Tiana kind of flips out, and I didn't really understand why. Well, Tiana or uh, Tindy is totally submerged in, into the uh, the program. Well, I think this is also her first time being a commanding officer. Okay. So if things go well, that can make her feel like she can do it. Yeah. And if she fails at it, then she might lose her in in you know advancing in that regard. 
Oh, okay. I think that's what she's what she's going through. And again, yeah. Rutherford is just watching a movie, and it just smells like fried Romulan in there. So this is the first <laughs> time, I believe, that I've heard someone mention smell in the holodeck. Okay. Like, I wasn't... I haven't been sure all this time whether when you walk into the holodeck, does it smell like... You know, is there like an electric smell? You know, like an electric fire? Because uh-huh. it's kind of that. Yeah. But if, I guess if it can generate molecules, like it can generate water, it replicates yeah. water. It, I guess yeah. it replicates the food if you eat food in there. So yeah. I guess if it replicates food and water and stuff like that, it would have to generate the smell that comes along with it. So question answered. Question answered. <laughs> okay. Tindy says, take a page from, let's take a page from the Melpinar's playbook. Right? Mm-hmm. And let's just rewind this whole thing to the beginning. Yeah. All the way back to the boarding party. Yeah. Now there's an interesting twist of of action that happens when the boarding party comes back to the scientists. It almost seems as if the scientist who was phasered to death last time has learned from his last time around. And now he knows, <laughs> yep. oh, don't hurt me. I'm just going to, because the first time he was like, oh, you'll take this over my dead body. And then he died. Yeah. Right? This time around, he's like, oh, take the thing. I don't want to die. Where did he get that from? <laughs> yep. So it's got to be, to me, it's got to be like somehow this hollow character has learned that <laughs> if I if I don't just give it up, here's what's going to happen. Maybe some of the bleed over from uh, Mariner and uh, Boimler's adventure has bled over into into this adventure. Oh, like some of the organic emergence of, of, of purpose and the, being and inner yeah. story. Yeah, the NPCs. Yeah. The Romulans uh, take the box and, and run off, and as it turns out, as you would expect, the Romulans don't actually have the chronogami. Instead, they have the Thaleron bomb, which is not a Thaleron bomb. <laughs> and then the Valdor explodes, as if the Thaleron bomb is like a regular incendiary bomb. Right. As Boimler's coming back to, we find ourselves on the third moon of Shatanari. Yep. So this is that thing about naming naming planets after Star Trek actors, because I was sure... Oh, okay. Shatner. Yeah, I was sure that Shatanari was okay. going to I'm present like... us Kirk. So oh. this is that red herring thing they're doing again. <laughs> when I saw Shatanari, I was like, oh, Drin, like I... it's going to be Shatner. <laughs> yeah, I definitely thought that, that Kirk was going to show up during this time, but Boimler and Mariner come across what looks like that um, that temple from the those old scientists era that's like a snake head. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Actually, it reminded me of the Cave of Wonders from Aladdin. I think that until the time that Boimler decides to like crack it open and try to climb inside, I don't think probably the inside existed. Although I oh, guess okay. maybe it did because the thing is called Katiha the whole time. I mean, I was hearing <laughs> Kitty Hawk. Um, yeah. I, I I thought that it was just like a weird, you know, yeah. phoneme. But <laughs> apparently when Boimler is doing this, you know, what is life for? And the the responses are something that you would get from, you know, those posters, those inspirational posters. Oh, where it has right. like Hang in there, Kitty. Where it has... 
Yeah, or it has like a puppy and it's like, Keep on puppy. <laughs> they should totally make that into a poster. A hundred percent. There should definitely be a poster of some Lower Decks puppies and Rutherford with like his thumb stuck up and just, Keep on puppy. I would buy a 36 by 24 poster of it, frame it and mount it on the wall. Absolutely. The, the, these aphorisms, like a purpose of life is a life of purpose. Now, so like some of the things that he says kind of make sense to me because I feel like the purpose of life is a life of purpose. Right? Okay. Because of that whole thing about, because of that whole thing about, you know, nothing beyond here matters because I'm not going to be able to interact with it. It doesn't, like, it's not going to have any impact on my life. Like, if it did, it would have an impact on my soul and not this person who is here now because this person who is here now is a combination of that soul and this body. Yeah, of so course. That would, that makes sense to me that a purpose of life is a life of purpose. Um, one of the things that I didn't get <laughs> was the thing about love is, Love with love without trust is a river without water. Yeah, that's a little bit. It's a it's a stretch, right? Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to hear the rest of the statement about laughter and a good night's sleep. <laughs> I really did. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Boimler wants more than these these pithy aphorisms and these weird sayings. Mm -hmm. So he's breaking into what he believes is Katiha. <gasps> the real yeah. answers must be in. And again, this is the the writers are again breaking the fourth wall, although the characters are not because mm. when he gets to the Wright brothers plane, which is from Kitty Hawk, yeah, it's very it's a it's a very pointed parallel to V'ger from uh, the first Star Trek movie. Yep, where it's been like the name is just kind of degraded, and we just have like little parts of it. So Katiha, yeah, the only yeah the the, the Wright brothers plane from Kitty Hawk is what we end up with. Well, and apparently Boimler hasn't read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Otherwise, he'd know the uh, meaning of life is uh, 42. Nectarine. Nectarine. Mm. So Boimler has a whole flip out. And I think he said, I think maybe he like Kirk's out so Kirk's out, see what I did there? Kirk's out so much that he, he like pushes himself into like a stroke or something because everything goes white. <laughs> uh-huh and then as we're coming back to there's I, you know like a dream sequence i think again yep. the red herring is supposed to be that we're supposed to think he's on the holodeck i don't think that i thought he was on the holodeck any of that time no i mean i wasn't sure what was going on there but i was definitely brought back to star trek generations for sure 100 yeah. percent, definitely in the same house and uh we we are expecting kirk i i had that low like low heavy hard feeling of like dread in the pit of my stomach like oh my gosh we're gonna see they're gonna bring William Shatner back yeah and they're just gonna shoehorn him in there I was overjoyed when he turns around <laughs> and it's Sulu because Yay! it's definitely even better oh yeah definitely so we are so now Sulu is the one who's able to like discuss the purpose of life and restate mm -hmm. it more directly Okay, so this is my favorite line from the whole episode. Brad, I've lost many friends. Some heroically. Some tragically. The randomness of death is merely a reflection of the unexpected joys we find in life. 
Do you think this is Mr. Takei talking about his friends, Leonard and Michelle? I think so. Or do you think it's Captain Sulu talking about other people that he's encountered? I think it can be both. I'm finding myself surprised in my reaction from reading it. <laughs> I'm finding myself surprised also. <laughs> to your reaction or my to reaction? To your reaction. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Sometimes, sometimes Star Trek will take us there, and that's okay. Like, that's kind of what it's for. It goes back to the whole thing where, you know, both Martin Luther King and Gene Roddenberry had to explain to Michelle Nichols, <laughs> we're not just doing science fiction. Like, look, this is here's what we're doing. The, yeah, and, and and there's a deeper meaning, and there's a depth. There's a horseshoe above the doorframe of the barn, stable, whatever it is. Okay, and it's upside down. The the opening is pointing to the ground. So it's it's like an N instead of like a U. Yeah, it's like an N, a lowercase N instead of a U. So the original idea behind putting a horseshoe there in the U shape is that it fills with luck and it holds the luck in. When it's upside down, you're getting rid of the luck and it's unlucky. I see. What's the word I'm looking for? Not religion, but not stereotype. Where people like when people believe that a black cat crossing your path is superstition. Superstition. It's an interesting superstition, and then they kind of maybe they didn't think about it when they were drawing it or didn't know about it, so they just kind of drew it however they wanted to. That's. That's very interesting. I'm I'm curious to that as well. Now that you mentioned it, I've never actually heard that. Uh huh. But I'm sure somebody did. Along with somebody on the writing team did. Yeah. So Captain Sulu's on his. Your horse is gonna bite you now. <laughs> and Boimler comes to in uh, in sick bay. Mm hmm. Yeah. It turns out that Boimler actually coded for a little while mm -hmm. so this was in fact a death dream so this is something that happened while he was you know in the ether well I mean he could have been in the Nexus I don't know how he would have gotten into it but okay but so Sulu wasn't in the Nexus so, oh. because Sulu was saying oh he had to go in time travel or whatever I don't I don't think Sulu oh. ever got into the Nexus Oh, okay. um, Boimler apologized for the bad movie, but I also, in addition to the other characters, thought it was a pretty good movie. Yeah. You know, like, it was Dagger terrible. fought off a mutiny and beat the crap out of a god, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the bad luck, though, that was existing in Boimler's, you know, death dream may have, may have fallen on Steve Stevens. Right. Because apparently for the second time in one day, Steve Stevens... <laughs> Has decided to lean against the warp core. <laughs> you caught that too. Yeah, I don't think that I've ever seen you, but like, there's a reason there's a railing around it, right? <laughs> it's got to be. I don't be... know if it's hot. Yeah, I think it should be. I think that I mean, you there's electromagnetic constrictors. Okay. That have to be extremely powerful, and usually things that are electromagnetic are putting off like fields and heat. And uh -huh. considering how much it has to constrict the flow of deuterium, both from mm -hmm. you know the antimatter storage pods and the matter storage pods, yeah, you got to super constrict that so that there's a very controlled reaction. So I imagine it does put off a lot of heat. Okay, 
maybe there's extra shielding on the parts that actually do have to be interacted with by humans. Oh, for sure. Like, I think that the part that, like, slides out that has the dilithium crystal in it, those parts need to be, like, either quickly cooled or kept cool. Yeah. Do you know your dilithium crystals are about to fracture? Um, this is, uh, this was, I thought this was a pretty good movie. It was a pretty good sequel to the Vindicta. This is a pretty good entry into the, into the Vindictiverse. And, uh, everybody likes a happy ending. Mm-hmm. This is not the ending, however. Not quite. We enter the redacted system. We do. System redacted. <laughs> no, it's the redacted system. Yes. I'm just repeating what it said on the screen. It said system redacted. <sighs> Tell us about this scene. Uh, we see a defiant class ship decloak. We do. That is what that is. And, and we pan into it. On the inside, there's a photon torpedo tube. Somebody reaches down and opens it, and we find William. Yes. Our duplicate. William Boimler. And he is quickly revived. Yeah. And he is provided a black badge. Yes. And the writers take, again, another opportunity to sort of poke <laughs> at Star Trek. So here's the thing about the black badges is I understand it. Yeah. So at the beginning of the discovery of, at the beginning of the initial discovery era, mm-hmm. Section 31 was was out in the open. It was not a clandestine. They were an open secret. I think at this time they weren't really a secret. I think that they were an intelligence branch that after the whole thing happened with control, that's what drove them underground. Oh. So I think, like, that's why they had the black badges, like, distinguish them from other Starfleet members. Okay. So the black badges disappear, you know, because otherwise people are going to know you're in Section 31. So it's interesting they made the choice to bring back the black badges now. Well... Because this is a different Section 31 than there was in the 2200s. Okay. Like, the original Section 31 was an open part of the Charter, and then it was supposed to be closed down after the the junk they did with Control. Yeah, the black badges just might be internally representing you are a part of us now, but you don't display it. Right. Like, you should definitely, like, when you put that on, it should, like, holographically cover itself with a regular Starfleet badge. Yeah, or, like, cloak itself or something. But we really don't have to worry, like... William can't show himself to anybody. Uh-oh. Because he's supposed to be dead. Yep. So the only way for William to operate in Section 31 is if he masquerades as Bradward. Yeah. Uh-oh. Where could they be going with this? Yeah. So, yeah, that's his really his only way back into the story is to pretend that he's Bormler. Because if anybody else sees him, he's supposed to be dead. So I would expect uh, Bradward to be very quietly and unceremoniously replaced at some point by this guy. I didn't think about that. That's a good hypothesis. Like, we might open an episode and get, like, halfway through the episode before we realize this is not our Boimler. Almost like with... uh... Thomas Riker? Well, yeah... But also, they they pulled that with a lot of the changeling replacements. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Dr. Bashir. Yes, that guy. To name one. 
I, I blanked on his name for a second there. It's okay. The next episode of Star Trek Lower Decks is called Trusted Sources. Oh. I thought that this may have been a reference again to Boimler, but what happens in this episode is a news reporter comes aboard the ship oh. to talk about the exploits of the Cerritos. Okay. Well, it makes me think back to the uh, ar- archaeologist lady. I, you know, I was thinking of that too. It's interesting that you should that you would have gone there. I wonder if we'll see her. We'll find out. I can't imagine that we've created Petra Aberdeen and we're never going to see her again. <laughs> Gave her a first and a last name. I got to tell you, I'm I was not all that fond of this episode. Okay, so really quickly, what what when does the next episode come out? Tomorrow. Oh yeah. What's that date? I don't know. I, mean, I don't. I don't have it in front of me. I don't even know what day it is today. You're. I. I lose track all the time. So tell. What's the date? Oh, tomorrow. So this episode comes out on October twentieth, two thousand twenty-two. Okay. So why didn't you care for this episode? I very don't much? know. They're just like. I. I just wasn't very fond of it. Like, there were a lot of cool things about it, but. Mm-hmm. I, I can't put it on the same level as a Deep Space Nine. You know, I can't put it on yeah. the same level as a lot of them. Like, this is this is all about... The, we kind of took some ideas and stretched them out so that they were so thin. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's there's a, there's a difference between, between making a croissant and making a pile of butter and flour. You know, <laughs> I kind of feel like this was... This, this is sort of like some butter and flour kind of spread around. Huh. There are some interesting okay. ideas, but I don't think they were like congealed enough together to be a a, a, a solid thing. Yeah, yeah, like I don't really feel like we got any any closure or understanding of the Tindy story. Well, maybe they left some threads dangling so that they can ex- be explored uh, this week. Yes, agreed. And maybe, you know, those other episodes, I'll rate them higher. This one I'm giving a 7.8. Okay. I think I just took this episode as it was and uh, went along for the ride. I kind of forgot to form an opinion on it. So if I were to be cornered on it now... Which you are. It's definitely not a DS9 episode. But did I... I mean, when I rated the last episode a little bit lower, did I rate this one is low or lower it's hard to say well you're gonna have to go through that and say it <laughs> I I'm getting there okay I'm reaching for a mid to high eight 8.5 okay here we go all right so that's that's now the end of our episode that's everything yep we hit it all we will see you in about a week for a <laughs> review of trusted sources which is written by ben m waller and directed by our buddy phil mark sadrakaka cool until next time everybody please stay positive dream big and you'll hear from us again soon support the continued making of this show through patreon.com
Let's Talk About Treks is a production of Anodyne Relay supported by the Star Trek fan community of listeners like you. We review the copyrighted works of Paramount CBS's Star Trek team, of whom no copyright infringement is intended. You can reach us via email at email at letstalkabouttreks.com. You can leave us a message at area code 202-804-6312. Our producer is David Moody, and our writers, Jack and Earl, are on Twitter as at Trekstalkers, and would greatly appreciate the obligatory like and subscribe from wherever you're listening now. We record on Lenovo computers with Zoom, mix with NCH Mixpad, and master with Kako 3Bird. Our intro, outro, and interstitial musics feature samples from Awakening by Waterboy from Pixabay. The koala smiles on us all.